Right. Okay, so welcome uh, along to our series of podcasts uh, for the for the winter conference uh, here in Scotland. I, I'm joined today with Peter Lindsay, agricultural consultant with SEC, uh, who does quite a bit of crop walking, uh, agronomy up and down the Carsagowrie and through into Angus. Uh, he's also helped out in our monitor farms in the past as well. And also with us today is Will Hamilton, a farmer from the Scottish Borders, um, specialising in combinable crops and some beef production. Uh, Will's been on the recommended list project for nine years. Um, so today we're going to go and have a discussion just around the building blocks uh, around yield uh, and markets in Scotland. Um, so kicking us off, uh, Peter, you'd just like to introduce yourself a, a, a little bit and uh, your take on the varieties um, that you grow. You're slightly further north, so you'll see a few different things uh, compared to Will and I slightly further south. Hi there. Uh, yeah, uh, Peter Lindsay, worked for SAC Consultant, part of SRUC. Uh, I've also got a family farm at home based in Forfar um, with combinable well, spring barley and uh, cattle really. Um, but I've been 20 years with uh, SAC, working as a general consultant, focusing more and more on the crop side of things, uh, now doing mostly uh, independent agronomy work through the, the Angus and Perthshire area. Uh, as you say, um, yeah, so like anything, variety is one of the first things to discuss uh, with a client um, once we're, we've got the rotation sorted out in the place where to grow. Um, we, we look at the, the recommended lists. Uh, and one thing to notice over the last few years is that there's certainly been um, an increase in number of uh, wheat varieties that uh, good, um, good wheat varieties that suit the Scottish Absolutely. conditions. Um, so yeah, there's a lot to choose from nowadays. So yeah, there's, we're not really having to grow varieties that are susceptible to, to yellow rust or anything like that, because there's plenty of other good ones there to choose from. And if, if we just bring Will in at that point, so Will, if you come along there, I mean, obviously, you know, you've, you're, uh, you've been around the block a little bit, shall we say, you'll have seen a few varieties come and go. Um, none least by sitting on the on the recommended list. What's uh, how have you th seen things um, progress through your agricultural career? Well, yeah, thanks, Chris. So I um, ha have, yeah, there's certainly been a real sort of mood change in attitude to variety selection. Um, you know, I can remember well when I first started farming. Basically, there was very few varieties to choose from. Um, you, there was literally about two or three wheat varieties and a couple of barley, spring barley varieties, and that was it. But as we moved on, we've moved into, you know, having a lot of um, a lot of available chemistry, which has meant we can, could control most diseases. And so, people would grow varieties for for out and out yield, and knowing they could control most most diseases quite easily and without too much expenditure. But things have all changed now. In my time on the Know, in the recommended list committees, um, we, we, we've changed from that and we're now looking for a, a real balance of features and certainly disease resistance, as Peter mentioned earlier on, um, that, that, is a, that, that is very important in a variety selection. We've obviously got to work with what the breeders are producing, but you know it's, it's become so much more important part of the recommendation process, looking at the, the untreated yield and the various um, disease scores. Um, because there's no doubt, you know, we've got septoria triticae, 
ever decreasing arm rate to control it. Um, we got the situation with yellow rust, where in the last five years, yellow rust becomes so much more dynamic and difficult to predict. And we've got. No, why, why is that, Will? Now, there's a few theories on this. And uh, uh, again, you know, we're seeing that on the East Coast, you know, up here, East Lothian. Yeah. Peter, you've, you'll be seeing it slightly further north as well? Yeah. Breakdowns at T0? Uh, yeah. Uh, with the yellow rust, is that sorry? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've seen, I've seen bits and pieces of it coming, but not a lot that I've ever done much about. Um, yeah, the usually a cold spell or something comes and cleans it up, but we do monitor it. Um, luckily, me being that bit further north, my colleagues further south can generally forewarn um, if there's yellow rust coming up. But yeah, it, it does appear from time to time. See that, interesting. I mean, well, you probably see the same as I do, walking fields and whatnot. That that you do get this explosion if you've if you've not got it right at T zero, you can yeah. really struggle to yeah. put the brakes on. I, I think what's happened is these races of yellow rust um, that, that 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 have come from from Asia are are so much more virulent and dynamic than the rust we we were used to more than five years ago. So. Um, it's still relatively easy to control compared to other diseases with um, but it, it you just have to be vigilant and the thing that for me is so difficult to predict and for the HDB in, in general so difficult to predict is that it can be very uh, one variety for ex in one field can be showing a lot of yellow rust untreated but go a few fields away and untreated it can be relatively unaffected and and so the whole idea of yellow rust races which we you know we had been i was brought up with different yellow rust races you could have a mixture of varieties that were re resistant to different races that has gone now um the, the a lot of plant breeders would tell you instead of races you get groups of races or families of races so you, you can get that even though sort of like big brother you know, might not be able to affect you. Little sister can, for example. And so it's it's um, a very more complex and dynamic picture now with the yellow rust. Um, and basically, even all, even a variety that scores eight or nine could somewhere be showing yellow rust. It's it's so difficult to predict. But um, so it is a concern. You have to be so vigilant with yellow rust. Yeah, and, and do you think you know be an interesting one, Peter? You know, we we do see quite a bit of that, and people, you know, I'm not saying are more interested than maybe they perhaps were, but they pay more attention. You know, there's more focus onto the fungicide program that goes along with crops. And I suppose we're mostly talking about wheat here at at the start. I should point out, and you know, Peter, would you would you say that? I mean, you know, soils are different uh, all the way up and down Scotland, and you know, does that play into it? Do you think? Uh, yeah, I think all the factors come into account, a variety of weather, um, climatic conditions. Um, people, yeah, they do pay more and more interest on the, the fungicide program, largely because we lose a lot of the, we've lost a lot of chemicals over the last number of years as well. So we've been using the varietal list to basically select varieties that are less prone to come up with problems. Um, and and start from the easiest thing is to not have a problem in the first place um, so if you can use the variety list and pick a variety that's less likely to have yellow rust then you're reducing your risk and you're probably not having to spend so much um, 
there is a lot to be said for going in with T-zeros. T-zeros are not something that I use an awful lot of, to be honest. Um, but the main thing, I think, is uh, watching the gaps between the, 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 the timings. Um, start at the right time with a good product, but don't be pushing the spray intervals from T1 to T2 or T2 to T3. Uh, that's where you really can let disease in. Uh, and I've we get called out often to look at, give second opinions to, to crops uh, and often the recommendation has been given correctly but the farmer's not been able to put the, the chemical on the field at the right time. Uh, now that's not necessarily the fault of the agronomist but it's still the reason why the, 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 um, the disease got in there in the first place. Um, so it's pretty crucial to keep those spray gaps shorter. So that's why if you've got a lot to get round, then it can be beneficial to start earlier with the T0 and buy yourself some time and clean it up. If you've not got so much to get around, then you can probably save some costs there and, and uh, don't bother with the T0. And it's all about horses for courses. Um, and often some of the guys, if they're going off to um, plant potatoes and that, the last thing they want to do is their agronomist to turn up mid, mid potato planting and say, actually, we've got a problem here. We need to get the sprayer out to, to grind your wheat fields. All they want to do is get the potatoes in the ground. So you just got to work with the farmers um, and the resources that they've got available. And do you think would that influence the variety choice that you would, that presumably you would have an input on these sorts of farms? Do you, do you then, uh, you know, look to different traits and varieties and, uh, and as usual in markets that goes with it? Within reason, um, mostly we're growing soft wheats um, up here. Um, that's what's in demand. And there's not a huge variation. As I say, there's a lot of good varieties on the, the recommended list now. And um, so there's been a lot of work done before it's got to the list, sifting out the, the poor varieties uh, from the, the good ones. So there's actually quite a lot to choose from. So there's quite a wide array um, that I would quite happily for people to grow. Um, but yeah, there's and there's always different people, who, whether they're buying from they're quite loyal to a different seedsman, so they might have different varieties that, than somebody that uses uh, competition. Um, there, there's all like I do. A, I can run a report on the the crop walking program at some point in the year, and it's quite interesting to see how many varieties of wheat um, all the farmers have got across the the board. Uh, and there's a huge number of varieties being grown um, across there. Whereas if you go to the spring barley's, there's yeah, single figures like one hand would be probably the varieties that are grown in in that market. Yeah, it was quite quite scary when you begin to see a variety break down. You know, when it's like the laureate and the spring barley scenario, that 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 can just all be over very very quickly. Like we saw with optic, you know, these varieties have gone through very quickly, haven't they? I mean, will what's you know what's your thoughts east coast there, um, coastal. Um, I suppose it's borders, isn't it? East Lothian borders, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I'm in the Berwickshire coast, yeah. So um, going back to the T0, I will almost always put a T0 on wheat or winter barley. It may be very low cost, but I will always put a T0 on just to give me that breathing space. Um, and it often means that maybe your T1 doesn't have to be quite so such a full rate as you would normally use. Um, so for, for me, and you, Peter, you mentioned stretching the, you know, that gap. For, for me, that biggest gap, no, T1, we, down here, down on my farm, we can T1, 
we can quite often be sort of pretty well into April before we're really at that stage. And um, so I, I like to have something on uh, some sort of cover, especially, you know, going back a few few minutes to, for yellow rust. Um, yeah, for, for me, that so I will always do that with winter barley as well for mildew, just giving mildew a quick knockdown at T0. Um, so, um, but we spent a lot of time talking about yellow rust. We, we were actually would regard on the HDB wheat committee, we actually regard Septuagint Triticide and in the north, mildew is more of a concern because we've just got reducing armory of chemistry for those two diseases. Um, even though yellow rust is a very visual disease if you get it in a crop. Um, and septoria triticide especially, you know, is economically is the biggest yield, ro yield robber or candy. Um, so that, that and the advancement in breeding techniques um, over the last few years, it's meant that plant breeders are really able to increase that um, septoria resistance has been absolutely fantastic from a farmer's point of view. You know, if you go back just even five years ago, we'd have most varieties that we'd be growing would be fours or low fives for septoria, but now you can get varieties that um, are sixes and sevens, and that just makes such a difference, um, you, you know, to, to to your fungicide programs personally. So I and it, it's um, I, and I think we're going to see more of that. Uh, you know, the the breeding techniques that the breeders have been able to use recently, with the mapping of each genome, where they know where all the genes are. Um, they're able to identify um, having um, what resistant genes are in the in, in the crosses very early on they can um, stack the resist stack the resistant genes as well now they know if they're stacked or not um, and that's just giving you a, a, a very sort of like polygenic you know, sort of a very sort of um, more wider resistance which we've, which has come through in the septoria triticide scores and Certainly, I know from the wheat varieties I grow in the farm. You know, I used to grow well ribbon going back a long time ago, um, and then moving on to consort and and viscount, all varieties that did, did me really well on the farm that had you know septoria resistance were were not the strongest points, and now I'm growing varieties that are so much better. Um, you know, sake, for example, some of the new group threes that have just come onto the recommended list, they look really good for, you know, septoria, which is high resistance. Um, so I think, um, you know, the plant breeders just have really been able to step up to the plate for that, which has come just in time, to be quite honest, because if we didn't have these varieties coming through and we're still working with varieties with scores and four or fives, we could be in a bit of trouble. Mm -hmm. I Absolutely. And, you know, Peter, you, you'll be seeing the same slightly further north there, maybe a different disease spectrum, definitely still septoria, obviously. Um, but, you know, it, it, are you finding it more difficult with a lot of chemistry, a lot of actives? How's that turning out as well? Yeah, septoria, you're right, Will, is, is definitely the main disease um, that, that we build the whole programme around. Uh, and this year will maybe be the, the telling year. Um, last year, we still had a bit of chlorothalonil to use up uh, before the, 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 the date came um, to stop using it. Um, a few guys were went cold turkey and didn't have any in stock, um, but the, the loss of chemicals is getting getting quite yeah problematic now. And we, we do have to look at, rather than just looking at another, uh, another 
solution in a can. Uh, we do have to look mm -hmm. at alternative practices. And you're right, the plant breeders are, are getting on board and, and coming through. With, with it's, the... it's definitely the first step, that, isn't it? You know, the plant yeah. breeders with a bit of resistance in there wholeheartedly agreeing. There may be a slight pause in there now with Brexit having happened and depending on the deal. I mean, we're hearing, we're hearing there that Mancozeb has got a bit of a reprieve, hasn't it? So it's now uh, another couple of years to run. Um, just due to us exiting the EU. So there might be, you know, you, when you have a few there that then if you were researching that were potentially due to go, Prothioconazole being the big one, um, which would have affected us greatly, wouldn't it? Yeah, there's there's a few. Yeah, we've lost some already and there's a few more that could go. Um, hopefully, yeah, anything that's left, if we can keep the longer, the better. <laughs> And um, the, the, the list of new ones coming through on the, the, the programme is, is pretty slow. There was a couple due last year which didn't just quite make it to market. Um, I haven't just heard whether they're coming through um, ready in time for this year or not. But yeah, it tends to be when new chemicals make it to market, they come through at a, a price, um, which, <laughs> yeah, when you're used to adding chlorothalonol into the, the tank for, for pennies, uh, the, the, uh, then adding some of these more expensive chemicals is certainly adding to the overall. Now, production. interesting, you pick up chlorothalonil there, and we are looking at alternative methods. So we had chlorothalonil for over 20 years, uh, most of my life, um, and, and past spray operators and all the rest of it. Now, we, we've lost it and we stopped with it. Now, it, it's a tricky situation, but have we seen what we thought we would have been controlling come to fruition, if that makes sense. You know, we stopped using chlorothalonil, so, you know, what's the effect of that? Have we seen that? I don't think we've necessarily been tested yet. I think last year was a pretty low disease pressure year. Um, so, yeah, if we get a, a challenging season, high disease pressure year, then that, that will put us to the test with a lot of these uh, losses that we've had so far. Yeah, I agree, Peter. We've had a lot of sort of cool, dry springs, which has really kept disease pressure pretty low. You know, it, we have to go back to 2014 in this area before we had a real bad Septoria Trissar year. And it, it, that was very, that was the year that persuaded me to move away from my old favourite Viscount, I'm afraid. Um, mm. But uh, yeah, a bit, but I think, I think, you know, the whole as going forward, the whole IPM story is going to take over. And we've been talking about fungicides and disease resistance in varieties, but I think there's going to be so much more going to contribute to the general agronomy, sowing date, for example, micronutrition, soil health. There's going to be so much more that's going to sort of be, we're going to have to look at so much more than just what comes out a can and the actual variety to control disease. It, it's, um, I, I, I think, I find it quite exciting actually, we're about to enter, for me, a whole new phase of, of agriculture, you know, with um, sustainability, um, carbon sequestration, um, reduction in greenhouse gases. It, it, we, I think there's gonna be a real step change in the next few years in, in so many areas of agriculture. It's, we, we, we've all been sort of like steadily progressing over the last sort of, well, 25 years, for example, um, since we joined the EU. And I think um, there's going to be a lot of changes coming up. I find it quite exciting. I absolutely agree. Well, and I'll just jump in there. So probably if, if we recap where we've been, you know, we've done a, a massive amount of uh, research since World War II. And if you think, you know, we, we had nitrogen, we've got phosphorus, we've got potassium, 
uh, and then we have lime as well, which were all great, you know, for maximizing the nitrogen use. And then you bring into the fact of that we've got cultivation, which was there to maximize yield as well. You know, the plough power harrow system, you know, fantastic invention. It's, it's seen as well for, for, for over a century there. And, you know, then you bring into that with fungicides, uh, you know, and we find the optimum rate by doing these crop trials and it all goes together. Now, when we're starting to have pieces taken out of that jigsaw, you know, we've got MVZs, we're probably looking at PVZs, we've got nitrogen use efficiency, nitrogen balance sheets, um, you know, and we're starting to look at what the consumer actually wants in terms of do they want Roundup applied to produce or not, and they're starting to get involved in their food. Where, you know, it's difficult to see without a complete reset, how do you continue when you've lost some of these elements which are key to the whole circle? I think a lot of it is back to good old traditional farming. Um, rotations are a key part of it. Um, there's a lot of farms, not maybe so much in Scotland, but parts of Scotland as well, where they, they, they it was like along the karst there, there was a lot of wheat grown year on year on year. And certainly I've worked with these farmers and we've went back to rotations. We were having issues even with the chemicals and um, with some grass weed um, mm -hmm. problems. Um, so we're not growing wall-to-wall -wall wheat anymore. We're using rotations to help with, with diseases, uh, but it was mainly started off with, with um, grass weed problems when we started losing a lot of the, the herbicides that were, were good for those. Um, and now there's more and more um, being looked at um, soil organic matter and soil health, as you said there, um, Chris. And again, it's quite easy to see in a lot of the farms that the fields we've been sampling them, um, but GPS, whatever you see them on the maps, and often still the fields with the highest organic matter are the ones that are closest to the steading, uh, where they were maybe in grass for the longest or had the dung carted back out there. Um, now it might still be uh, 20 years ago since there was any of that there, but that it can still show. And um, so there's a lot of more of a move. Um, with, with well, livestock onto these arable farms one way or another, whether it's in the form of um, just replacing the old good old-fashioned straw for dung deals. I've got guys that are grazing uh, winter cereals with sheep. Um, another part of, of that is to get around, just get the crops sown early and then control the forward growth with, with a sheep grazing it off. But the other problems of that is that the infrastructure is long gone in a lot of these places. So I've been able to put livestock onto some of these big arable fields. It, it, it's, they're working away with sheep and electric fences, but it, it's, it's taken a bit of effort from these guys to, they, they have to want this to work, uh, to do that. Yeah, it's quite interesting how farming goes in circles. You know, you're talking about putting sheep and wheat. I can remember when I was a young boy, but I'm a lot older than you two, that, um, yeah, it was quite common for sheep to graze wheat. And of course, in those days, we were mixed farms, all the fields were fenced. Um, and it's good. But as I said, um, you know, circles, we had um, direct drilling, for example. I can remember direct drilling in the 1970s, and it's come back again. But in a better form. So every time we go, come, we go around a circle, things come back, but it seems to be a bit better and a bit, you know, we, uh, there's a bit more knowledge there. So livestock back in farms, you mentioned, Peter. Um, yeah, yeah, the straw for Mark, you know, we, we're just about now um, 
using all the straw that we produce now, um, coming back into muck. We have a number of straw for muck deals, which we've built up over the years. Yeah, um, again, that's you now sort of turning full circle again, with what we did sort of like more than a generation ago. It's, um, but, and um, so I, um, yeah, I, I think that going forward, we've got um, a lot to look forward to, but it's going to be different, isn't it? Yeah, a lot different. Yeah, and certainly the, the direct drilling, there's there's uh, more of a movement towards looking at reducing the tillage and, and um, using cover crops and and uh, the rotations, the livestock, just basically, yeah, everything. I think there's, there's where people want to be, but I think just moving slowly towards it and doing things a little bit better every year, um, whether it's cutting out a cultivation pass uh, rather than going just cold turkey but I know there's a few farmers um, quite sizable farmers that have that they're just going all in and, and I think there's been a few more um, either strip tills or direct drills but they're becoming more and more common practice uh, up in this area and uh, it's just trying to work with that there's a lot of um, experience in other countries around the world and, and down south uh, in England but Scotland tends to be considerably colder and wetter uh, than a lot of these other other countries <clears throat> so I've got guys looking at this too um, and yeah a lot of the experts you, you put your cover crops in after harvest and and then and terminate them before you put the next crop in uh, some of these guys up here have been trying to establish their cover crops in the standing uh, cereal crop because they just don't have the time after one crop being harvested to, to grow another crop in between but if they can get one established Two, three weeks earlier um kind of 10 14 days before the combine is due uh, it, it's actually it's amazing what it's what it's been able to do um so one thing a farmer likes is a challenge and particularly if they're told that something can't be done they'll certainly prove that it can't can be done uh, so they're, they're coming up with various solutions modifying uh sprayers with putting pipes along the arms to blow the, the seeds in out, out the full reach of the the, the tram lines and some have tried just putting with with uh, slug pelleters on the booms or whatever um, but they're looking at various different ways of doing it uh, and yeah low cost as well um, is, is the key thing. I completely agree with you there's a couple of things in there isn't there you, you know the definition of robust into the young cool kids as, as we can call them you know robust probably to our age group and older was always the plough and piggyback you know because generally no matter what you got the yield but you know if you take obviously rape establishment now robust is no longer um to plow and sow for for the fine seeds or small seeds is it you, you know the, the old uh, anecdote that oil seed rape will grow fine on the concrete outside but you sow it and it, it, it just mm -hmm. doesn't does it you know and there's so much to understand there but it's you know there's probably a quite a shift i would imagine in trends uh, from you know oil seed rape you know and spacings and the research that's been done there to, to to try and let it away and it's it's an interesting one really isn't it yeah so certainly the i don't know 70 odd percent of the the seed rape area that i walk now will be established not using a plow um often by farmers that plow for everything else in the rotation um the, the only thing they don't plow for is seed rape because um, it, it does seem an easy crop to, to establish as um, without the plough at the minute. Um, we don't have just quite the same uh, pest pressures, flea beetle pressures, 
um, up here um, as yet. I'm not saying it, it won't come. Um, but again, if you can get the crop and the ground and established quite cheaply and know that you've got a crop before you start spending a lot of money on it, uh, then that, that's quite key as well. But some of these guys have progressed on then once they've, they've realised that they can establish this crop um, quite cheaply with, with without the plough. Uh, then they're, they're looking at the following crops, the following wheat crop after the, the rape. And then beyond that, well, that's two years it's been not cultivated for. Um, can we do it again? And they're just testing these things a bit further and further. And as I say, a lot of the land I'm looking at is quite heavy clay land. It costs a lot to turn it over and then break it back down into a seed bed. Um, Compared to some of the boys' land, <laughs> you, you uh, use, use that word uh, loosely. A seed seed bed in Cars Clay that 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 has uh, quite a few different connotations mm -hmm. from my uh, from my growing up anyway, doesn't it, Peter? Uh, it, it certainly can. Uh, so yeah, uh, they've got, they, these guys know how to work that land, um, but it comes at a cost often. Uh, so yeah, if a lot of them are quite successfully now um, establishing certainly the old seed rape and looking to go further now and. I don't know if I think ideally they would love to go entirely uh, direct drill and no till completely, but I, I think at the minute they're not averse to using the plough when they need to. Um, I think if things start getting late in the season, I think they might still revert to the plough, but certainly in the dry, ideally a nice dry summer and a bit of crumb on the top of that clay, then I think they're quite happy to, uh, to, to get on with the direct drill. And certainly the one farm I'm thinking of that's using the, the livestock that's part of the plan. Uh, we will put the the cereal crops in earlier than what I would traditionally say was a suitable sowing date um, with the direct drill. Now it'll it comes through a bit slower with the direct drill establishment technique, um, but if it's too far advanced going into the winter or coming out of the winter, we'll we'll graze it back with some livestock. Mm -hmm. So it's quite interesting you said. Um, you say that 70% also drape will now be sort of put in sort of non-plough. I, I put in the borders be very little now. Also, drape will be put in after after the plough. Just about everything will be put in subcast or or min-tilled and drilled. Um, yeah, and uh, there's less and less ploughing being done in the borders every year. I would say. Um, I wouldn't say there's many people either go on direct drill or. Um, Know, to things like Clayton or Missouri, um, there's a few, but not many. But most people are certain, certainly to some extent, doing non-inversion tillage, um, and you know quite a few people moving to controlled traffic and whatnot. That seems to be the sort of progression in this in this area of Scotland. I would say the only issue, big issue that some people are coming up across is, is grass weeds, which you mentioned earlier, Peter, and it's getting it the right rotation there so you're able to control the grass weeds and avoid a build-up of, of brome especially. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and certainly the, the farms that we were working on before that I had grass weed problems, they were on minimum tillage. But from what I've uh, seen since then, um, I'm thinking back on it, Minimum tillage was just the worst of both worlds. Uh, you didn't get the, the the benefits of the the clean seed bed from ploughing and deep tillage, but you did all the disturbance and you mixed all the, the the weed seeds throughout the whole soil profile by dragging a big set of cultivations across across the field. So I certainly think uh, the direct drill approach or strip till it looks as if it's going to work better than than 
just using great big massive tractors um, to drag massive cultivators across fields. Um, so I think that's what I've learned in the last few years from working with a few farmers in this area. Um, and a lot more research being done, you know, I mean, we, we name drop Adrian Newton in there especially, you know, these guys uh, working with Doug Christie and certain partnerships, you know, there's been a lot more research done into the weed bank and where weeds sit and different techniques. And as you say, I mean, Mintel is just the explosion of of weeds. You know, if you don't have the right rotation with Mintel, you, you can you can very quickly um, find yourself in a bit of hot water there, would, would suggest, or deep deep water, if you like. But, you know, before the answer to that was the plough, whereas now, you know, some of the, the work that's been done on it is now suggesting that actually you're better leaving it on the surface, perhaps, and, and culturally dealing with it. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that's that's what they're looking at. So between the rotations, various crop types allowing you to use different chemistry in the rotation as well as as actual just um, winter crop, spring crop, uh, things like that. All all tools in the armory. Um, whereas again, historically it was probably winter wheat, winter wheat, winter wheat with big cultivators dragging through the fields. Uh, so it's. It, uh, Effectively, it was unsustainable, and as it's turned out to be, um, so we're now looking at things more sustainably again. Um, which has come, some of it has, has come um, from pressure from from the, the public. But in general, if something's not sustainable, it's not going to carry on. It's going to be unprofitable anyway, so it, it will end. <laughs> That's it. It's it's about learning from your mistakes and moving on, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly, and. Uh, well, part of my job is to um, so that various farmers. Well, so that ideally only one or two farmers make the mistakes, and all the other farmers can learn from them. I'm sure that neighbours are never slow to point out mistakes. At least mine aren't. <laughs> yeah, I know they're, they're they're struggling with this uh, lockdown, not being able to see all each other's mistakes quite so much. <laughs> well, it's usually the first thing in the no-till brigade's uh, armoury, isn't it? You just don't cut the hedges the first year, so people can't see over. <laughs> Uh, so that's the definition of no-till, Chris, is it? <laughs> that's exactly it. The hedges aren't cut in year one, so nobody can see what's going on. Yeah, no, I think the main thing to do is to don't worry about what the neighbours think. Yeah, yeah, which can be difficult as well, isn't it? You, you know, it's a great thing. I mean, most of our, you know, we are commodity producers in Scotland. Most of our produce is generally destined for the alcohol market. And, you know, there are people now looking you know, nutrient-dense food um, production. And, you know, we've got the, the pasture for life, the grass-fed beef that, you know, is better or not better or better flavours. Um, but, you know, this is the public are really starting to be aware of what they eat and what they want. And, you know, there is a shift, um, you know, in milling wheat growing as well. Uh, there seems to be people going into that and then looking at different varieties for different purposes and maybe taking out different crops so they're not stacking winter ones. Are you guys seeing that as well? So, yeah, um, personally, uh, not a lot, Chris, but, you, you know, um, I, I actually, um, I have to confess, I still grow quite a lot of Golden Promise, which we now call a heritage variety. Um, <laughs> we were talking about disease control earlier on, but basically as soon as Golden Promise sticks its first leaf through the ground, you've got to be thinking about your first mildewicide. But I have to say it's uh, really, uh, we've I've almost like never stopped growing it. It's a really good crop, and it's it's one of those story foods, as we say. You know, you could it, you've got the story of this heritage um, 
heritage barley variety going into these sort of a craft craft hills and um you know for for some that, so I, I actually quite enjoy being part of a sort of food chain like that um but but anyway chris that uh, i've diverted slightly from your um, sort of question which was um you know uh, uh, changing what we're going to be growing in that the, the only thing i i i have done personally so far is one variety of oats which um quaker um no, no, really like, and that, that's and that that's Conway, and we're now growing a lot of Conway oats for for Craig for Quaker. We find it works really well, and they're always a bit coy about why they're so keen on this variety. It seems like, but the only um, miller that wants it. I'm sure we all have a theory about that, but that's the only sort of um, only sort of um, example I can think of of what you asked me about. Yep, yep. And, and again, you know, it's, it's great to have uh, the mill uh, in Cooper um, for for Quaker oats and uh, and trying to keep the provenance there is is absolutely fantastic. You know, we've been through quite a few different varieties, um, working closely with Oatco and the trials that Scott Ag have done um, up there in Fife, and it has been an interesting process. And are, are you doing the Conway drilled as a winter variety over winter, or are you, are you, are you a little more both risk averse to both? Both winter and spring. Um, uh, this is only the second year of the winter drilled oats, um, uh, and there's not a lot in it, to be quite honest. Yeah, yeah, it's not reinventing the wheel in terms of it's a month early for harvest, which would be a huge benefit, you know. Yeah, I, I, I must be. Some people have been quite apprehensive about drilling a spring oat in the winter. Um, I must be. I, I haven't been because. Um, I don't know if any of you know Dr. Ethel White from um, Northern Ireland. Ethel is a great character and a real expert in oats. And um, she gave me a lot of confidence about that because most of the oats grown in Ireland are actually spring oats drilled in winter now um, uh, for various reasons. And so um, she, I always t um, bounce oat, oat growing ideas off Ethel and um, she, she, she says, no problem, go for it. And I have to say, yeah, it, it worked very well last year, and so far they look okay this year. We'll see. I hope I'm not. Don't I have to come. I have to eat my words. Yep. Peter, you seen much in the north? Uh, or not? Yeah, we've been at that, but certainly just going back to changes in rotations and crops over the years. The and Angus uh, and parts of Perthshire potatoes are kind of king of the rotation. And everything revolves around that, and uh, it's filled in between. But the the one thing that has changed over the last um, kind of five plus years is the introduction of AD plants. So we've we've seen um, mm -hmm. the introduction of rye and a little bit of sugar beet uh, in the in the area, uh, but quite a lot of rye, and um, it's obviously being whole cropped for um, going into the, the anaerobic digesters. Uh, so that that's given an alternative uh, crop to grow in the rotation. Um, and we're kind of fortunate. We've, we've also got two pea vining companies up here, so we've got other break crops. Um, we, we can have uh, vining peas or beans introduced into the rotation um, quite easily to get a break crop for wheat. So it, it's certainly, yeah, up in this area, we've got quite a choice of crops that we can grow. Uh, it's just trying to get the ones that can be profitable and uh, 
but I think at least having that choice does give us more of a go at having a, a rotation that, that we can work with to overcome some of these other problems that we've been talking about earlier. Yeah, absolutely. And, and where do you see, you know, there are, there are some um, guys, you know, and everyone has their field, if you like, um, where, you know, generally the ones after grass, you know, we see wheat after grass or rape after grass, you know, there's, there's very little um, environmental factors that are detrimental to the plant's growth. You know, we generally don't see the plants take as much disease, I would suggest, than maybe a continuous arable rotation. And maybe that's, you know, the organic matter. You know, we're down at historically ones, twos, threes percent um, organic matter in the in the arable, um, the mainstay, if you like. And, you know, compare that to New Zealand, where they're still at nines or tens and seeing the big yields. Uh, you know, how much influence do you think organic matter has against wheat or plant plant health versus uh, susceptibility um, to these different diseases? I think the main thing that organic matter comes to is moisture control really moisture retention in the uh, dry spell um, but also moisture absorption and, and stopping it running off the field um, in the wet spells uh, and I've certainly seen it a few times over the, the last number of years <clears throat> you go away on holiday uh, come back from holidays it's quite a nice warm July August whatever and you can tell the farms that are long removed from livestock um, the, the crops can often have gone uh, effectively died off rather than ripened uh, whereas some of the ones with uh, a lot more uh, diversity in the rotation from from livestock grass organic manures uh, whatever they can still be quite green and growing away and can actually benefit from a late rain to still add some yields uh, so yeah I, I think organic matter is, is pretty crucial but a lot of it's if, if there's no moisture if they can't drag moisture out the ground then they can't drag any other nutrients or anything else out the ground either mm. Yeah, so I completely agree, Peter. You could put, put it a lot more eloquently than I ever could. But um, yeah, I, I mean, it's. Uh, I just think a lot of organic matter in in soil. So, um, I mean, I've I've taken over a couple of farms which have been in long, long term arable rotations. We try and build up the organic matter because if you you know when you first start growing crops so they just don't have the vigor it's it, it, it it's a whole combination of factors i think it, it, you mentioned the moisture piece there's fertility there there's a soil structure if you get a vigorous plant it's so much it's 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 so much easy easier for it to fight off disease to um you know and it, it, it's just different altogether and you get an extreme spell of weather you mentioned a dry spell no wet spell as well they're just so much more resilient yeah exactly um, I, I think there's a lot of unknowns that goes on in the soil as well uh, and, and we always want to think we understand everything whether scientists can understand it or what but a good healthy soil just seems to react and grow far better uh, crops with less issues arising uh, I don't know that we necessarily know the how it all works, but uh, we just know that it does work. And certainly, uh, yeah, organic matter I think is pretty pretty crucial to the whole thing. Yeah, absolutely. And it seems as an industry, you know, there's a lot more focus. There's a lot more of these groups popping up that are so you know that are really interested in trying to find out what's actually going on in the soil. What are we needing to do, you know, versus what you actually do? And you know, one of the, the Yen Group. Um, 
which which again yield enhancement network the guys that are involved in that you know it's too easy to say people are going for glory and yield and awards but those that win it you know there's a history to that and generally as you say it's organic matter it's depth of soil you know it's working with the land and trying to keep the biology going um but you know will you're signing up for yen this year i believe as well as as a first go with the, with the daughter coming home trying to prove <laughs> dad wrong or right is it or yeah, yeah. where are you going with that where am i going with succession you mean or with yen <laughs> well with yen for a start that's an easier one to answer maybe so yeah yeah we're, we're looking to that i'd be quite keen to do the oats yen as well because i have to say it's it oats are a, a, are the cereal that i i feel i understand the least so what and and yen's just um d doing oats for the first time this year so that is um definitely one we're going to sign up to yeah um so succession's good. Um, so I've um, uh, got a daughter now who's had uh, about six years experience of farm management uh, further south, and she's uh, come home. And Annabelle, it's been it's, it's great having her home. So it's um, it's it's really good. Um, I'm looking forward. To, uh, we're starting to gradually hand over various bits uh, bits of responsibility. Um, mm -hmm. I'll probably just be a nuisance from now on, I would imagine. But, <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully you'll be able to do more podcasts and, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to, to pick up and see if Annabelle's instill, instilled some change there or, you know, where oh, obviously oh, yeah. she was slightly further south. Uh, she'll have different ideas to what Dad has, no doubt. Uh, yeah, a bit. Yeah, a bit. Uh, but she's learned a lot. Learned a lot for the, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so... Yeah, it's going to be, and she 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 was in some very good Lincolnshire heathland uh, to start with, and then some sort of marginal Northumberland land after that. So she's had the experience of sort of some really good stuff and some middling soil. So um, we'll see what she makes of the East Berwickshire soil. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Perfect. Well, look, thanks very much for your time today, guys. Uh, that's been an interesting tour um, around Scotland and to see a few of the differences that we've we've picked out there so we'll, we'll we'll draw that to a close just now and thanks very much for your time cheers yeah. uh, my name is mark basher gibbs and i'm a consultant at sac consulting based in edinburgh as we move towards summer this year we're holding the sruc east loathing crop trials evening at southfield farm near dalkeith courtesy of fordal mains farm this new site for 2023 is proving ideal, with ample on-site parking and covered areas for presentations and hospitality, and the trials themselves are only a short walk away. So please do note the date in your diary. It's the 29th of June, which is a Thursday, and we're going to be starting at 5pm. Invitations will shortly be sent out, and registration links will soon appear on the FAS Scotland website for both this trials evening and our other trials evening in Lanark, which is happening on the 7th of July. We're heading further into the growing season now with increasingly warm days and nights, crops are accelerating through the growth stages, and we're gaining a clearer picture of this year's crop yield potential. Indeed, AHDB's most recent crop development report put winter, puts winter cereal crops current potential ahead of that issued this time last year. Similarly, there are favorable conditions uh, reported across the wider northern hemisphere crops. 
Domestically, we're seeing more homegrown grains still on farm and held in stock by merchants, corps and ports compared to last year. And in the case of barley, some 22% more. Compound feed manufacture over the last nine months remains 6% lower compared to last year and will invariably have a part to play here. The trade is reporting another slow week for feed barley markets with consumers seemingly well covered for old crop and uninterested in engaging in new crops just yet. Likewise, farm selling is reported to slow for both old and new.